Amen. Amen. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Grace City. If I hadn't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for being here, being a part of our community on this Memorial Day weekend. Today, we're going to be covering a passage of scripture that speaks to, I believe, one of the highest blessings that we have in the Christian faith. I am convinced that if we fully understand this truth, if we fully understand this doctrine, um, that, that it can not only lead one to a relationship with Christ, but I think it can embolden and empower your faith in truly a revolutionary way. And I know that is a huge promise to to make, but I do, I I believe that about this truth that we're gonna look at because it's a truth that um, it can drive out fear. It can give new pursuits, new, new dreams for your life, and it can even give a new hope for your future. It is a doctrine that modern day theologian J.I. Packer says is perhaps the greatest secret of the Christian faith. That said, I do believe this doctrine is one that is difficult to comprehend, difficult to, to, to believe fully in. It's, it's not that it's hard to understand on an intellectual level. Um, you, you will know it's not that it's difficult or confusing. You'll know what it is that we're talking about. But to, to allow this truth to take root in one's soul, to allow this truth to, to help change a heart, to, to, to change hopes and dreams, I, I think that's where the difficulty lies. See, in regards to Christian faith, like uh, we preach a doctrine of justification. Uh, this is the belief that because of the work that Christ did on the cross, where he made a way for our sins to be given to him and for his righteousness to be given to us and allow us to stand justified before God. That's a, a, a truth, that's a doctrine that we, we preach, we reference week in, week out. And I think uh, that is life-giving and hope, uh, hope-giving in and of its own right. But I think that's even a doctrine that is perhaps more readily believed in, practiced and applied to our life than the one we're going to look at this morning. We also preach a a doctrine of regeneration uh, in the Christian faith, that that when we trust in Christ, our old is gone, that our new has come, that in Christ we've been made new, that he gives us new life. And that truth is also incredibly hope-giving and joy-inducing. And that is one that we make much of at Grace City, right? I mean, our mission for our church is that we would help one another discover life in Christ by grace and community and with purpose. So we we, we speak about that one uh, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. It is amazing and profound of a truth as that is, I also believe that that is one that is perhaps more readily believed and practiced and implemented in our life than the one we're going to look at this morning. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, the apostle Paul says this, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Scripture shows us that one of the, one of the life-changing, hope-giving aspects of the gospel is this, is that by faith in Christ, we have been adopted into the family of God. And it's this doctrine of adoption that the modern theologian J.R. Packer says is perhaps the greatest secret of the Christian faith. And again, it's not because it's difficult to understand. It's not because it's, it's hidden in some ways, but rather this is a doctrinal truth that I believe so many of us, myself included, stop short of fully embracing and, and, and fully seeing how much it carries over into so many aspects of our life. But I do believe that the more we set in on this, the more we, we dive into this truth, the more we understand that we've been adopted into the family of God, that it is a truth that, that can drive out fears. It is a truth that can give us new pursuit, pursuits and dreams for our life. And it is a, a doctrine that can get, even give us new hope for the future. 
And so I want us to look at this in context. Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 17. Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 17. Now, in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is really, from start to finish, writing to help uh, the Christians in Rome understand more of who Christ is, what Jesus has done for them, more of how God has worked and moved on their behalf. And, And through it all, he's also helping them understand who they are in Jesus and who they are as God's people. And this church at Rome was, this church in Rome was a little bit, um, I won't say unique because m- many of the first churches were like this, but in, in Rome, you see very much a mixture between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Uh, it was predominantly Gentile, but there was a significant, uh, significant group of, of Jewish Christians in, in the Roman church. And so what you have in this one church, you have a, a congregation full of people with very diverse theological backgrounds. So the Jewish Christians were those that had grown up knowing the Old Testament scriptures. And so they had seen the virtues and the, and the attributes of God that he had revealed to the world through his chosen people, the Israelites. And so they grew up knowing the word and, and seeing the truths there and seeing how so many of those truths, the trajectory of them uh, culminate in Christ. And so they respond to Jesus and they know that their hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. And so you have this group of Jewish Christians that are part of this church. But then you also have a group of Gentile Christians. And these are people that predominantly have come out of of pagan worship to false gods and goddesses. And so they have all sorts of different concepts for what it looks like to worship God, what it looks like to even like, can you know the gods personally? And, and, And if so, what would that even look like? But yet they meet Christ and they're encountered to the hope and they encounter the hope of this gospel. And they say, no, that there's, there's not many false gods and goddesses. There's one true all-powerful, eternal, uh, all-sovereign God in Christ Jesus, and that he has made a way to actually be in a relationship with the almighty and eternal, powerful God. And so Paul is writing to this group to help them all understand who they are in Christ and, and what God has made them as his people and as his family. And, and it's here in, in writing to this, te- in writing to, to this church where Paul is, is trying to help them understand who they are. Because again, if they know who they are, if they know who they are in Christ, that is going to, to absolutely change how they relate to the Lord, how they relate to one another, and how they live out the calling that God has placed on each and every single one of their lives. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 12, we're, we're dropping in kind of at the end of a discussion. He's just been teaching them about how the Holy Spirit helps one uh, come out of a life of sinfulness and, 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 and leave a life of sinfulness behind. If you were with us last week, we're in 1 John chapter 3, and we talked about this notion of how there's sometimes in life where, where you see, or there's some people where you can watch them and you can see that they, are, they choose sin after sin after sin. They continually choose sin with no remorse, Right? No remorse, uh, with no realization of how sin is affecting them, of how sin grieves the Lord, of how sin is truly damaging of their life and, and of their own soul. And so uh, we talked last week about how they're, they're not being led by the Holy Spirit. Similar conversation that we're dropping into here. Paul's having a similar teaching in this text. And Paul talks about that as being led by the flesh. Whereas uh, on, on the flip side, Paul says, well, look, when we place our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes upon us and the Holy Spirit helps us see our sin, helps us know our sin, how it grieves the Lord, how it's damaging to our own soul. And the Holy Spirit actually helps us confess sin, repent of sin, and in so doing, actually put to death sin in our life. Look at how Paul says it, verse 12, Romans 8, verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So again, with this text, after a section writing about how the Holy Spirit leads us out of sin and pursue righteousness of God versus the the sinfulness of the flesh, Paul is teaching, showing us that look, when our lives are guided by and yielded to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, it murders the misdeeds of the body. You know, it, it helps put to death that sinful nature so that we can pursue life in Christ. And so Paul is helping them understand, helping all of us understand that one ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives is it helps us put to death this sinful nature. And so this section is is drawing our attention to the ministry, to the the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And he's going to continue this theme. And and as he continues, he's going to show how really the ultimate motivation to to war against sin in our life, the ultimate motivation for following uh, the ministry and the leadership of the Holy Spirit is because of who we are in Christ. Christ. And the Holy Spirit tells us who we are as adopted children. Look at verse 14. For those of you, for for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children, uh, I can't even read, can't read this morning. Let me try it again. Romans 8, 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. I still don't feel like I said it right. Do y'all? I feel like I'm putting the emphasis on the wrong word and it's just off. And some of y'all are looking at me like, dude, just read the verse and keep going. Um, so Romans, I, wanna, I, w- I would like to read it intentionally. Um, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Uh, verse 15, the Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. So it's, it's still a, a little bit of uh, helping us just reinforce what, what we've talked through. When we trust in Christ, right? When we believe in his gospel, surrender our lives to him. We are led by the Holy Spirit and that marks us, that shows us a child of God. Because again, there's so many that, that, that claim to be a child of God, but yet they continually give themselves over uh, to sin and they show no indication of being led by the Holy Spirit. And they show every indication of being led by the flesh, um, led by sinful desires and selfish pursuits. But what we're seeing in this language here is, is that when that happens, right, when we're led by our own sinful desires and selfish pursuits, we don't realize it, but we actually become enslaved by them. We become enslaved to these desires and to these, uh, to these temptations. And, and again, this is, you don't, this is not, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I mean, you've heard this before, right? I mean, it's the lie of sin. It's the, it's the deception of, 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 of sin in our life, that it promises life. It promises joy. It promises peace or comfort or security or whatever, right? It promises all that, but it's a false promise. When we get in, give into these desires, when we give into these pursuits that are outside of the Lord, it's a false promise and it doesn't satisfy us. It doesn't satisfy us deeply. And so what happens is that lack of satisfaction then creates a fear inside of us that we'll never know security or peace or purpose or comfort, or what it means to be unconditionally loved. We'll, we'll never know those things. And so we look for them in so many different places. And, and, and that lack of satisfaction, that fear creates a hunger and a thirst. Well, I've got to find more and more and more of this. And next thing you know, we're enslaved to our flesh, enslaved to these sinful desires, enslaved to our sin. And so Paul says, no, the Holy Spirit of God that we have been given by faith, when we place our faith in Christ, does not lead us to slavery to fear. But the Holy Spirit of God marks us, shows us to be a child of God who's been adopted into God's family. And it is an adoption that is personal and is loving and brings with it all the benefits of being in the family of God and having, God, uh, having you know, again, God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, 
one that we can relate to and speak to as father. And with him being father, he is a good and perfect father. So he knows all those desires that we have for peace and comfort and wholeness and love and purpose and meaning. He knows those desires. He created us for those desires. And he's created us to have those desires met in him. Because as the good father, he knows how to meet those desires in a way that leads to our growth and development and joy. As opposed to ways that that leads us to be enslaved uh, to sin and enslaved to our fear. And so... What we're seeing with this, and I I went off the rails just a little bit. What we're seeing, if we're tracking along with Paul on this, right, is he's showing us the ministry of the Holy Spirit and that it brings about freedom from slavery to sin. It brings about freedom from slavery to sin, freedom from fear, freedom from the never-ending struggle to to measure up, to try to satisfy yourself, um, to try to create that uh, feeling of joy that's never going to last. And so the Holy Spirit gives us a freedom from all those things. But it's not just a freedom from because the Holy Spirit also gives us a freedom to. It's a freedom to experience the blessings of being a part of the family of God. And the first and foremost of those is being able to relate to God as Father. And so Paul's going to continue on this, uh, on this teaching, on this metaphor of, of, of adopted in the family of God and showing how much uh, that should impact our lives and, and showing some more blessings of this. Let's, let's continue because he, uh, he says once again, verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So if you see, I mean, twice right there, I mean, verse 14 and verse 16, we're getting two reminders, right? That we are God's children. Uh, when we place our faith in Christ, we are adopted in the family of God. And it's crazy how much we have to be reminded of this. Crazy how much we have to be reminded of this truth that it really takes root in our heart. Like we, we can say it, yeah, I'm a child of God, but Paul's like, no, 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 I want you to know this. This has to set root. I mean, this is something you got to believe in your bones that you are a child of God. And so he even says, it's the Holy Spirit. There's a ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. He continues to teach, to counsel, to remind us that we are adopted in the family of God. So, so with that, we should understand we didn't earn our way in, right? This isn't something that, that we earned our way in. We, we, didn't, we didn't buy our way in. This is something that God has done uh, out, of the, out of his love, out of his grace, out of his mercy. He has done this work to adopt us into his family. And so as we didn't do anything to get us into the family, uh, when we're in the family, we need to understand that we are uh, part uh, of God's family. And so he's the one who's choosing who our brothers and sisters are in God's family as well, right? So what this, is, this does for us is it helps us see that there should be no distinction in God's family. Uh, distinction is not the right word. There should be no superiority within God's family of one brother or sister over another. Yes, there's a distinction. We, we see that about God's made us all different. He's made us unique. He's made us individual, but there's no superiority. R- remember the context, right? This is given to the Roman church. There's Jewish Christians, there's Gentile Christians. Uh, so it's a multiracial congregation that are, in, that, are, that are in this church. And so this doctrine of adoption helps obliterate any notion of superiority among socioeconomic or ethnic um, boundaries that we could be so tempted to observe. And so Paul's helping them see we are part of the family of God. There's no superiority uh, between brothers and sisters. We are all here because of God's love. Our one role, our one act, our one response is to share that love of God with our brothers and sisters in the faith. And so again, Paul is helping 
all of us understand, there's a, helping us understand with the Holy Spirit, there's a freedom from slavery and sin. There's a freedom, freedom to enjoy the blessings of being a part of the family of God. And one of those, relating to the Lord as Father, and another as having this family of brothers and sisters that God is continuing to expand one child at a time. And then Paul continues. Paul continues to uh, highlight, for me at least, perhaps the most difficult part of this to grasp. One of the most difficult blessings of adoption to actually apply in our life. Look at verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs with Jesus. To me, this, this truth shows the depth of love, the reach of God's love to me. And, and, and that, you know, he, it shows the love that he, he gave to us while we were still sinners, right? While we were enemies of God. Yet he loved us enough, even in the midst of our rebellion against God's kingdom, to make a way for our sins to be forgiven, for righteousness to, to, to be given to us. So he made a way for that. He made a way for us to have a newness, newness of life. So he made a way for our justification and our regeneration. But it's more than that. He doesn't stop there. He goes on and God loves us to seat, to seat us up alongside Christ, his one and only begotten son who lived a sinless life and who accomplished the victory of God's kingdom. Like, do do you see what's happening there? Like we are in our sin, we are rebelling against the kingdom of God, trying to bring down the kingdom of God, trying to war against the kingdom of God, yet his love meets us, redeems us, saves us, and now moves us alongside the one who brought about the victory of the kingdom of God and says, you are brothers with Christ, you are heirs with him, you are co-heirs with Christ. And I just, I don't, like why, why, why? Why would he do such a thing? And we see throughout verse after verse after verse, it's all pointing to the riches of God's kindness and grace and mercy and love that he would pull us out of the midst of this and seat us alongside Christ and actually um, have the audacity to say, no, no, now you are co-heirs with my one and only begotten son. All sorts of questions come with that one, right? I mean, I, I could probably write out a whole list of them. I'll just ask one. If we're co-heirs with Christ, what's our inheritance? And some of you are like, that's a very selfish question there. It's just like, I don't know. I'll ask it, fine. You know, like, what's our inheritance? Uh, what, what's our inheritance there? Um, to be sure, we inherit eternal life. Christ says, oh, come that you might have life, have life to the full. We inherit eternal life. But there are others. John 17, 22, Jesus says, I will give you my glory. So we actually are able to share in the glory of Christ for all eternity. 2 Timothy 2, 12 speaks to how we will co-reign with Christ. And so how we will reign with him. So we actually inherit authority alongside Christ. And so as, as co-heirs of Jesus, these are all things that we see God's word speaking to and showing us that as his children, we will inherit. And those are promises that only come to us in and through our adoption. 
So we inherit life, we inherit the glory of Christ, we inherit authority with him until uh, one day. I don't, I don't know what that looks like. I, don't, I don't have no clue what that looks like, but we, we see that we will in some way, shape, form, or fashion is, is be, uh, have authority. We'll be stewards in God's kingdom. And so what you have with all this is you have these hopes for the future. There's eternal life, there's, there's sharing in Christ's glory, there's this authority, but this is a hope that's not just for, for then, it's not just for the future. It is a hope that impacts our day-to-day living. It is a hope that impacts the decisions that we make in the here and now. And we even see that with this last phrase of of verse 17. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. This phrase is is not so much conditional as it is an assertion of fact to the Romans because the the Romans were were already suffering for Christ. They had made a profession of faith. They were uh, under opposition. They were under hardship. And, And so suffering for their faith was a reality for them. And so Paul's like, look, you are suffering for, the, for your faith. If, if you're doing this now, then you can rest assured you will experience glory with them. You will rest assured that you will experience the victory and the hope of Christ as well. And so it was a, uh, as we have this hope for this future glory and victory that we share with them, it gives us hope and power daily to endure the hardship, to endure the opposition, to endure the suffering now because of who we are in Christ. This is part of the experience of being in God's family. He suffers now to help redeem, to help restore, to help mend up what is broken, to usher in his victory. He's going to place us in, 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 in the world amidst the brokenness, right? Amidst the darkness. He's going to place us in those areas to be messenger of his hope, to be tangible representations of the grace that he has given. And so when we live that out, right? When we are in those situations and we're, we're adhering to our faith, we're following Christ and, to, and, and willingly embracing some of that hardship, then it is, the, we can know this promise is true as well, that we will share in the glory and the victory uh, that Christ has given to us, as, as, that Christ has given to us, that God has given to us as being part of his family. And so we see, we see all this being poured out, and we see all this being given, and we see uh, uh, all this being given to us. And again, I said earlier, like, why would he do such a thing? It's, it's just purely an expression of his grace, of his mercy, and of his love. 1 John 3, 1, we looked at it last week. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should become children of God. And that is what we are. God has overwhelmed us with his love to help us know that yes, we've been justified. Yes, we've been given new life. But along with that, and even more so, you've been adopted into the family of God. And so with this as his aim, to help us know and see who we are as his children. Let me ask you this question. How, so, I mean, so if he, let me set that up just a little bit more. If, he, if, he's, if he's overwhelming us with his love, right? And we, we've talked about how he's pulling us out of our sin and, and seated us alongside, alongside Christ. So if, if he's overwhelmed us with his love to there, and we know that it, for all eternity, he's going to pour out his love into our lives to help us see all, for, for all eternity as well that we are part of his family. With that as his aim, how angry do you think God would get at anyone or anything that would try to deceive us from that truth. How angry do you think God would get at anything or anyone that would try to deceive us from this truth that we are not really his child? 
Now, we talked about it last week, right? There, there is this cultural notion that everyone's a child of God. Scripture says that is not, that is not the case. Um, the scripture, when, when, we're, when we reject Christ, when we've rejected his truth uh, and, and are ignorant of who he is and what he's done, Scripture says we're enemies of, of Christ. We're enemies of God. But thankfully, Scripture says God loves his enemies. And he meets us uh, there, right? And he shows us Christ. He wants his enemies to become his children to be adopted into his family. And so, but again, when we place our faith in Christ, we're born in the kingdom, we're adopted into God's family. So how angry do you think God would get at anyone or anything that would begin to lie to us, to deceive us about our standing, about our place in God's family? Once more, like, do you think that he would have a, um, an anger and, and even, even a, a, a wrath against still on uh, on just a refusal to step into that. Or I don't want to say anger or wrath. I think how, how much do you think it would grieve the heart of our Father for you and I as children to refuse to see ourselves as such? How much do you think it would grieve the heart of God for, for us to stop short of embracing our identity as his child? How much do you think it grieves the Father for one brother or sister to try to establish himself as superior to another? And so what we see, God's anger and grief are both expressions of his love. He, there, there's anger. He doesn't want anything to deceive us from our, our identity. There's grief over he doesn't want anything to, to help us, uh, grief over anything in us that would keep us from fully stepping into it. And so what happens is his love reveals the brokenness uh, in the world around us and also the brokenness in our relationships to help us turn from that, to help us turn from our sin and to continue to rest in who he is and rest, as our pla- rest in our place as a child of God and his family. And so how, like again, I've said that this was one of the highest blessings of the Christian faith, one of the hardest ones I think for us to fully, fully embrace because I think so, so many times we can, um, so many times we, we can just, just fall short of, yes, I'm a child of God, but I'm second rate. And I'm like, no, no, you're co-heirs with Christ. I, I, I think there's so many times we just turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to this message that God's love is continuing to send to his adopted children that we are his children. His Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that this is something that he has done on our behalf and this is who we are. An adopted child, part of the family of God. And so I think there are call to actions with this. I think there are call to actions. The call to action this morning is maybe for some of you to, uh, to the first step is to respond to Christ's love for the very first time, to trust in him and today know that you can be part of the family of God, that you've been adopted in the family of God. Maybe today is your, is, that's your first step is to say yes to that and, and trust in what Christ has done on your behalf. Still for others, I, I think the action is to embrace this truth is to embrace this truth uh, and, and let this doctrine ground your identity to God the Father. Ground your identity to him uh, that, because that's what helps us pursue a life of holiness and righteousness freed from a slavery to sin. Let this doctrine anchor your need for community back to the family of God. Let this doctrine anchor your purpose to the life, uh, to, uh, purpose in life to the work that he has given us uh, as, as having uh, stewards of being stewards of the kingdom of God. How can we begin now to tangibly demonstrate and show the hope of God's kingdom? It's a doctrine, as Packer says, and so many others, is one of the great secrets of the Christian faith 
this doctrine of adoption. Let me, let me say this. Um, because this is the elephant in the room. Um, and I've, I've wrestled all week with whether or not to say this. And some of y'all might have been waiting for this to happen from the get-go because you know our backstory. April and I, uh, so we have three kids and all three of them are adopted. And uh, and uh, like daily, it is a, um, there, there are so many lessons that, that God has taught me in and through that. Like, I mean, just, all, it, just if you're a parent, there's so many ways where you can see um, gospel truths expressed in that relationships. But let me say this, um, every adoption story is different. Every adoption story is different. Just like every, I mean, every, every way that someone becomes a parent is different. And, um, and there were like 10 different illustrations that I came out of this text that I, that I wanted to give, but if I gave that illustration, it might lead to something different or it might, um, might lead to a wrong conclusion um, or just, just something that I'm not comfortable with. And so um, this is more confession I, I, this is ugly. This, this is not like the, I don't even know how I can adequately describe what it is that I'm saying other than, um, this will get there. I, I'm flawed and I'm broken. And, uh, and so in my relationship to my sons, um, I, I don't uh, help. <laughs> um, um, I don't want my sons looking to me like I'm God. I don't want to have a God complex in my relationship with my adopted kids. Does that make sense? And, and I got nervous if I used my family as an example of a metaphor for this, that in some ways I would be, some ways it would lead to wrong conclusions for our family. And, and we know, I know I have many, uh, many people in our church or, uh, ha- or uh, have a, uh, this is, it mirrors your story or similar to, and you might understand the tension that I'm speaking to. I probably should just pray and end it. <laughs> um, uh, um, but, uh, but I'll say this. Yeah. Um, and this, this goes back to the tension of, like, I don't want them to equate it with me, but like my whole life, I'm gonna love my kids and I'll, And I don't ever want them to doubt who they are in relation to me. And just, do you know that by faith, you are a child of God? God is your father. Every Christian, your brother and sister. The kingdom of God is your home. You've been adopted into the family of God. Know it, live it, let that truth alter dreams, pursuits, your daily living, because this is who you are in Christ. And I pray it's a truth that takes root in your bones and changes the way that you live. Let me pray for us. God, we love you and we thank you for this incredible grace that you've given and for this mercy that you have poured out. And God, um,
thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for this incredible truth that, that yes, you justified us, you gave us new life, but you adopted us into your family. And God, I, I pray that we would know that and see that, that this is something the, that you tell us, your Holy Spirit reminds us day in, day out, that we are your children, that we have hope in you, and that because we are your child, God, we can flee from sin, we can enjoy the blessings of being a part of your family, um, that we can know we have purpose and glory and authority and power in and with Christ because we are co-heirs with him. God, I pray that that is a truth that leads to humility, that leads to grace, that leads to mercy, that leads to us um, realizing that we are here to tell anyone and everyone that all are welcome to come and be a part of the family of God and to experience the love of the Father. So God, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for this blessing. We thank you for this truth. It's in your name that we pray.